sermon to, uh, this morning. Again, Exodus chapter 11, uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, this week and next week. So next week will be the final, uh, final Sunday in our series on Deliver Us with uh, just covering the 10 plagues. And so today we're on the 10th plague. And so the title of the message this morning is Ending the Wicked Line. Now I know when you look at that, uh, and, and when I looked at that, and Carly does such a great job doing graphics, and, and I was just kind of like, you know, I really feel like it needs to be more Christmassy. Like we're we're talking, it is Christmas, so that's what she did for us. Um, so <laughs> Exodus chapter eleven. I'm not sure that's what it looked like, but Exodus chapter eleven. We can go back to that original one. Uh, Exodus chapter eleven. If you would stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 4. The word of the Lord says this. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Worse than there has ever been or ever will be. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Thank you that you're so good to us. And Father, I pray, Lord, that your hand will be with us today. Lord, that you would just be moving. It would not be my word spoken, but yours spoken through me. Those who would have an ear, let them hear the declaration of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In this passage, we see the final blow against Egypt. This is the final plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. This is the final and really climactic act of God throughout the ten plagues. We see that the ten plagues throughout this series, we've seen that they've grown in intensity. We've seen that there's been, there's been times where, where God then, he, he kind of starts a little bit harder on the Egyptians. Where instead of, we, we saw the shift between just the Egyptians being uncomfortable to now the Egyptians dying. And now in this final act, God is not necessarily causing something to come that would cause the death of the Egyptians. Now he's actually killing them himself. And we look at this and we see this passage. It's, it's really a passage of tragic and horrific magnitude. This is a direct attack. When, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, we're not really sure at what time frame this is happening. Uh, most likely, this is during the, the last conversation that Moses had with Pharaoh, which was during, uh, during the, the last plague. During the last plague, Pharaoh had talked to Moses, and, and he was trying to make a deal with Moses to let part of Israel go to worship him in the wilderness. And Moses just simply said, no, we, it, it's all or nothing, and that's the way that God wants it. 
and Pharaoh refuses. And I think Moses says this out of anger because God has already given him all of these things that are going on. And he says these things out of anger. And we know this because at the very end in verse 8, it actually talks about saying that Moses, he's, he was hot with anger and he left Pharaoh. And so this was a, a conversation that he was having with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh had continually and, and throughout this entire time of all 10 of these plagues, Pharaoh would, would continually say, okay, you can go, but then change his mind at the last minute. Or he would bargain with Moses and say, okay, if you make this plague go away, then, then, then I'll let your people go. And that never really happened. And so I'm sure Moses is frustrated that the fact that, that Pharaoh would say these things or, or do something that he would continually uh, really shake his fist at God and, and spit in God's face. And so Moses, hot with anger, says these things. I even love what it says in in verse 8. It even talks about how all the Lord will make a distinction between Egypt and Israel and all officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, go you and all the people who follow you. It's it's interesting that that Moses is saying this. He's essentially saying like, all your people are going to know who God is when this happens. This is going to be it. This is going to be the final thing. That This is going to be the, the once and for all move of God that you are going to see the mightiness of the Lord. And, and He's going to do something so great that it's going to hurt you so badly that you have to. It's not just letting us go for a moment, but you'll be forced to expel us completely from Egypt. And that's what this plague is most likely a direct attack upon Pharaoh. I mean, it is a direct attack upon Pharaoh, but when you look at Egyptian culture, and we've talked about this, the other ten plagues, uh, there's, there's always a connection to a god, an Egyptian god or goddess. And in Egyptian culture, Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh at the time was known or considered to be a god in human form. And so this Pharaoh, this is a direct attack upon Pharaoh because really what what God is saying is is you have no power over your future line and so I'm going to kill your firstborn. They're considered gods and so Yahweh is really hitting Pharaoh the hardest at this moment. God is killing Pharaoh's heir, the next little god that's going to come after Pharaoh firstborn in a family during this time is is really an incredibly important individual. It's probably the second most important, only second only to the father of the family. This is more of a patriarchal society, and, and so we, we see that the firstborn is expected to lead the family once the father is gone. The firstborn is expected to continue the family lineage and the family name. The firstborn is, receives an extra inheritance, an extra piece of inheritance from the Father. But when, when you look at, at Scripture and see the inheritances that are, that are being broken up, if there's two brothers, then the inheritance would be split into three pieces, and, and two of those pieces would be given to the firstborn, and the third piece would be given to the second, the secondborn. And so the firstborn was, was incredibly important in this time. If the father was the current leader, the firstborn was the future of the family. 
especially if it was a firstborn son. And so by this tenth plague, this mighty blow that God has against Egypt, God is not only killing the firstborn, but he's also cutting off the future of Egypt. He's, he's essentially telling Pharaoh, okay, Pharaoh, you're in charge now, but, but your line won't be in charge anymore. You don't have a future anymore. This plague reached every inch of Egypt. It even says it, it says from Pharaoh, even to the son of the female slave, all the way to the firstborn of the cattle of Egypt. It's very intense. It's this importance that we see that that Pharaoh could have ran from all the other plagues, but he cannot run from this one. He could have gone, he he went inside from the hail. He he was able to to go into his his storehouse to get some grain and some food that the locusts may not have eaten. He's he's able to, to, to weather all of the all of the plagues except for this one. He's now at this point and he cannot escape the death of his son. It says that this plague would bring great wailing in Egypt. Wailing is used throughout Scripture. It's, it's really to, to show this deep mourning and sorrow. In Esther chapter 4 verse 3, this is when, the, uh, when Haman uh, convinces at that time Xerxes, the, the ruler of Persia, to to give it an edict to essentially eradicate Israelites. And it says this in Esther chapter 4, verse 3. It says, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so this wailing is, is, is with mourning, is with weeping, is with deep sorrow. That's, that's this wailing. You see in Luke chapter 8, there's a, a young girl that has died, Jairus' daughter. It says, when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And so this idea of wailing is, is this idea of, of great sorrow that in, that in all of the sudden, every single firstborn has died in Egypt. And there is this great wail in all of Egypt, not even something that hasn't even ever been heard again. This, this deep sorrow and breaking of the Egyptians says there's not a sound from the Israelites. It says not a dog will bark. I find it interesting the, the usage here of, of, of a dog. And, and it could have been anything. It could have been, you know, no one will be crying. There won't be a, a shutter of a door. There, there, a slamming of a door. There won't be anything. It's not a dog will bark. Now, unlike today's times, they didn't necessarily have uh, the Labradoodles or the Corgis or the Yorkies or whatever that looks like. Now, the dogs in this time were actually considered wretched and vile. The Israelites didn't like dogs, which is unfortunate for them. 
but they were considered wretched and vile creatures. And so what, what Moses was saying is, is that not even a hated animal will make a noise where the Israelites are. It will be complete silence. And so here, the, the destroyer, the, the Spirit of God comes and, and takes the life of every single firstborn, and there's a great wail within Egypt, and, and everyone is crying out, and everyone is full of sorrow, and everyone is in mourning, and everyone is seeing the power of God, and over here in Egypt is silence. And then you'll know, Pharaoh. You'll know that there's a distinction between Egypt and the Israelites. And it's this final act that will fully deliver the Israelites. There's no more lies of Pharaoh. There's no more deals to be struck. No matter how many times Pharaoh decides to agree to what Moses is asking and then deciding to to back out of it, there is no more backing out. This is the final blow, the ultimate blow that, that not only has God destroyed so many things within Egypt, not only has he attacked the very life of the Egyptians, now he has taken the very future of Egypt as well. See, God has ended the wicked line of Egypt. So the question is then is why is God doing this? Why why would God do this? Well, first it's to show once and for all, it says it in the passage that that God is who he says he is. It's to show that, that God is greater, that he is supreme, that there is no one beside him, that there is no one more powerful than he is, that although he was able to, to prove that he was more powerful than all the Egyptian gods, now once and for all, he's going to, to be shown as more powerful than the God-King Pharaoh. But then also, I believe, again, it's to cut off the future of a wicked Egypt See, without a firstborn, there is no future here. Without a firstborn, there is no heir to the throne. Without a firstborn, there is... It, it goes to the secondborn, but, but it isn't like it was supposed to be. It isn't the way that it's, it's supposed to go, is that his son is supposed to be the one, that his firstborn son is supposed to take the throne. There is no future, there is no heir. The question that I have, would have for us today is what does your future look like? What has happened in this passage is that God has completely cut off the future of Egypt, a, a wicked people, individuals that are, that are against God, that, that are stiff-necked and hard-hearted against God and, and God decides He cuts off their future. And by asking this question, what does this future look like? Really, the, the understanding is just as God has ended the wicked line of Egypt, for us, He made a way for us to start fresh. When we talk about Christmas, when we talk about the, the point of Christmas is that 
Jesus came, God came clothed in flesh. And why did he do that? He, he did that to set the captive free. He did that to, to, to bring hope to the world. He did that to bring new life and life abundantly. That's what Jesus did. And so when Jesus came, as a baby in a manger, he came so that, so that no longer will this line of wickedness continue, but it can end. And you've heard me say this before, but it wasn't the, the way that anybody would have thought the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that the God of the universe would come. He came in humility in a manger. Not to, not to come with a sword and to, to end the wickedness once and for all, but, but he came to end the wickedness once and for all, but he did so by, by dying and empowering us to do it. I think that's so important for us as believers is the firstborn son was taken, was given to, to die. Scripture says that Jesus was the firstborn of all of creation. Colossians 1, 15-16 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. This passage doesn't mean that, God, that Jesus was created. What this passage means is that Jesus holds the status of firstborn. He holds the status of, of the future. He holds the status of, of he is preeminent. He is over everything. That's what this passage is saying. And so because he is firstborn, because Jesus is preeminent, that means that he has the power to decide future. And so what did he do? Well, he died so that we can have the power to end the wickedness in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. 1 John 5.3-5 says, In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so when we ask the question, what does your future look like? I think we, we must sit there and say, well, in order for us to look at our future, we also have to consider our past. But maybe for some of you, your children, you're sitting there and saying that, that you want a better future for them. That you don't want them to be as angry. You don't want them to go through the addiction that you went through. 
You don't want them to to go through the hurts that you've gone through. You don't want them to go through the heartbreak that you've gone through. All of those things. And and that can happen if you sit there and say, okay, Jesus, make it so. Jesus gives you the power to, to, to stand up and to sit there and say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm not saying that every single parent is perfect, and I'm not sitting here and saying that if you do that, everything's going to be unicorns and rainbows whenever you raise your kids. I don't have kids, and, and, and yet I know that that's not true. <laughs> Just because your intention is to serve the Lord and your, children's, and your intention for your children is to serve the Lord doesn't mean that they necessarily will choose to serve the Lord. But for you, you have the, you have the power that, that Jesus has given you by dying on the cross. By overcoming death, hell, and the grave, you have the power to sit there and say, no, no, there's no more wicked lines that are going to come out of here. The wicked futures that would come out of my heart aren't coming out anymore. Reality is, is we all have the story of individuals that we probably would be if we didn't have Jesus. Maybe our children, we'd sit there and say, you know, I mean, I'm the child of an individual that my father was an alcoholic. Some of you know my story. And he was around, but not really around. And just being honest, there, there was a lot of pain that happened there. And And so for me, statistically speaking, I shouldn't be standing before you as a pastor. And yet it's only by the grace of God that I stand here. And in the same way for each and every one of you, the the understanding is is that you have the choice to sit there and say, no, no, it's it's not going to happen in my family. We're ending this. The, The... all of the addictions that my life has seen, that I've seen, that I've experienced, that maybe it's even your parents or your parents' parents. It goes all the way back. Maybe you're just an angry person and it's because it's, it's just something that's throughout your entire, all generations, your entire lineage, just angry people. That's just who we are and we're just angry. And, and yet Jesus gives you the power to sit there and say, it ends with me. Or maybe some of you in this place, maybe it's not your children, but maybe it's your grandchildren. And maybe you did your best to raise your children to love the Lord. And they decided one way or another to walk away. There's hope for those children. There's hope for the prodigals to come back. But you can still say, when I'm around my grandbabies, it ends with me. They don't don't have to continue to repeat these sins. They don't have to continue to to do these things. What maybe was was a, a bad hand in life for my children 
and it affected them a certain way, but you can sit there and say, Lord, with, with your help, with a lot of prayer, <laughs> with your grace and your power, my grandbabies are going to know you. This is important for us to, to understand this, is that many of us, man, we, we see our history in our lives. We, we look back and we, we, can't, we can't decide or, or choose the future that God wants for us unless we are able to look back and see the junk that we came from. Otherwise, we just continue to think sin is okay and we continue to work forward. We continue to think that brokenness is okay, but, but Jesus gives us the lens of the life that we had before him. To sit there and say, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. It means that you no longer have to live a, a history and continue a family history of anger and bitterness. You no longer have to live a family history of, of pride, of greed, of lust of addiction. Maybe it's shame. Maybe your whole, your family is, the currency of your family is shame. Where it's, you're not good enough, that other person's not good enough, and so, so all of this shame is wrapped around who you are. And instead of giving that to the, instead of, instead of sitting there and saying, you know what, I'm just, this is, this is who it is. I just, I'm just ashamed of myself. I'm just always going to be ashamed of myself. I'm always going to be anxious. It's just, I'm, just, I'm just a wreck all the time. Nobody's going to love me. Nobody's going to care. Any of those things. And we just wrap our identity in shame. We could give it to the Lord and say, you know what, Jesus, it ends with me. You're a God that can take all of this shame. See, shame is directly tied to sin. The, the repercussions of the first sin. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, was shame. They ran and hid from God because they were ashamed. They, they didn't know what it was at first, but that's what it is. And so repercussions of not being good enough, look, I hate to break it to you, but none of us are going to ever be good enough. No matter how great of sermons I preach, I'll never be good enough. No matter how, how perfect of a parent you are, you'll never be good enough. Can you just take that in just for a minute? No matter how much you want to be perfect, you'll always come up short. And yet, what you can do is say, even though I'm not, he is. Even though I come up short when raising my kids, he's perfect. Even when you come up short with anything, he's perfect. And so that line of shame no longer has to be here. It can go away. Not only that, but maybe some of us, man, the line is pride. So many people I've found, especially in church circles, 
They'll be the first ones to point out everything except for their pride. Well, by golly, I read my Bible. By golly, I, I serve the church. As if serving the church is something to be highly regarded versus sitting there and saying, I get to clean toilets for Jesus. I hold some position, I hold some leadership among the people of God, and so therefore, look at me. And the reality is, is all of that pride, eventually that individual will be brought to their knees. Why? Because that's what Scripture tells us. That every single person, no matter how full of themselves they may be, when they stand before the throne of God, they must hit their knees. Why? Because the glory and the power of God will be upon them so heavily. Nothing can stand. And so we have the choice. We could sit there and say, you know what, I'm just going to continue pride. Or, you know, my, my dad's full of pride. Or my, my mom was full of pride. Or my great-grandfather was full of pride. And so we're, that's just who we are. We're proud people, you know. Or... Jesus, you came as a humble servant. Not as a triumphing warrior, but as a baby in a manger. And you overcame, and, we, and I realized that the only way to gain my life is to lose it. I realize that if I truly want to be righteous, I must humble myself. If I truly want to, want to experience all that you are, I have to realize who I am and I'm not you. And so that line of pride ends with me. And hear me, I'm not saying that it's easy to sit there and say the, wicked, the wickedness stops with me. It's, it's not easy. Because there's always will be times where our hearts tend to wander back to, to shift back to the way that things were. But there's, there's certain things within our family that, that maybe you look at your family and you say, I don't want to, to recreate that. I don't, I don't want that to, to come around again. I don't want my children to deal with those things. And, and the reality is, is that through the power of Christ, those things can be broken. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to simply pray. And I want to I pray for specific individuals today. Because the reality is, is that Jesus overcomes and gives us the power to overcome all of these things. And so if you and your family, you look at your past and you realize that your past is broken and you see the brokenness and the addiction and you see the, the, the anger and the bitterness, you see the pride, you see all of these things and, and you, may, you may be looking through all of this and, and looking at your past and the Holy Spirit is simply revealing to you those things and the choice can be yours to sit there and say, it stops with me. And why do we have that choice? Because Jesus 
died so that we could. That means that your family no longer has to be liars. Your family no longer has to be fake, but they can be genuine. How many times do, and again, that's partially rooted in pride, and here I go again, but how many times you come to church and you're putting on the, the mask and sitting there and saying, everything's great. Life's good. Marriage is good. Kids are good. Everything's the, the best it could ever be. And yet the reality is, is everything's in shambles behind us. But we put on the mask. And maybe you'd sit there and say, well, Pastor Galen, if, if you knew what was going on, then I don't know if I'd even be welcomed in this church. Well, you're wrong, first off. Because this is a place for the body of Christ for broken people <laughs> to come together. Never found a church full of perfect people. One day it'll happen when we're with Jesus again. But for now we're broken people continuing on this journey home. And some of you, you've been holding this in this this mirage of life this this kind of just you don't want anybody to see you don't want anybody to to be let in you just you just want to continue to live your life and everybody to see who you are and that you're good and everything's good and everything's lined up and everything's pretty and everything's great and the reality is is that if you if you're being honest you say that everything is broken, is breaking and falling apart. And Jesus can restore that. And so again, the choice is yours. We're going to pray in a moment. But I wonder how many of us in this place, we would sit there and say, it ends with me. I want it to end with me. I, I, want, I want to know what that's like. I, I want to know what it, what it feels like for, for me no longer having to, to worry about becoming my father because Jesus paid that price. I no longer have to worry about becoming my mother because Jesus paid that price. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're no longer part of that line. You're part of a new one. So let's choose today to end the wicked lines in our lives. I'll just, I'll just say this real quick. And then we'll pray. Ending the wicked lines in your life. Saying that you'll, your, your house will serve the Lord. Is not, hear me, 
This is part of it, but isn't it fully? Is not you just bringing your family to church? I I really, I, I feel like I need to say this. Just because you're in church doesn't mean that you won't continue to reproduce what the wickedness of your past has. What, what that means is, is, is our line of thinking has to be the reason why we come together is to worship the Lord and have an encounter with the Lord. And, and it's an encounter with Jesus and it's a relationship with Jesus that changes those things. It's not simply our attendance on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. And in some ways, we can sit there and we can say to ourselves, and we lie to ourselves, that you know what, we're, we're in church, we're good. And the reality is, is that wicked people in a church are just as wicked as wicked people out of a church. And so please hear me, we're going to pray. But if that is your line of thinking, that we go to church and we're good and we're on the right track and everything's great and it's, it's going to be wonderful, you know what that is? And you could talk to me after. You know what that line of thinking is? It's witchcraft. It's the pagan belief that you can be doing something and God will do something because you're doing it. You following me, what I'm saying here? I said witchcraft and I lost people. For us to believe that we can be in a certain place and we can just by our attendance get something from God, that's, that's paganism. That's just as bad as the Egyptians. Now, I'm not sitting here and saying don't come to church. Do come to church, but come to church because, man, it's great to be in the house of the Lord. Come to church because God works best in his house. And it's a great place to be. And it's a place where we can be loved. And it's a place where we can be, we can be spurred on to good works, but don't come to church and think that you're good simply because you attend. Being involved in the body of Christ is what Jesus welcomes us into. Coming here on Sunday mornings is an important thing. We worship God and we glorify God. But if we just simply go here to go through the motions and hope that somehow in eternity there's a checkbox of righteousness, then what that becomes is it boils down Christianity to, to some pagan idolatry. That isn't what the gospel would say. The gospel would welcome us into a relationship that changes people's lives. The gospel would welcome us into a life, a new life, and life to the fullest. That changes everything. That gives freedom. That that gives purpose and hope. All of those things. That's what the gospel brings. It's not just simply going through the motions. It's having an encounter with Jesus. 
we on the same page here? Did I explain myself enough? I'm not going to get any angry emails. I love you. I want the best for you. I want, I want God's best for you. I want God to do some incredible things in your family. I, I want one day for, for us, me to be long gone and great, great grandchildren are able to sit there and say because of, of what my great, great grandmother did or what my great, great grandfather did. By making a commitment that they're going to follow Jesus, I'm following Jesus now. Should the Lord tarry, I want that to happen. So let's pray. Father.